This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Micah Blanc, episode 139. Let's do this. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast. I am your host, Michael Blanc. I'm really excited that you're here. Hey, I found another one. I found another one who quit his job with apartment buildings. That is just amazing. Now, this guy took him 15 years to do it. Why? Because he did a bunch of single family houses. Ah, and then he got into apartment buildings and he didn't raise money. But you know what? That's still a better plan than most other people. Okay. Buying one rental at a time, one a year is an awesome plan compared to everybody else. So kudos to Michael. Uh, Michael Zuber is our next guest here. And he chronicles his entire journey. And he never raised money until very, very recently. And, you know, it, it would have accelerated his journey by his own admission. But it doesn't matter. This is what's important. It doesn't matter. Yes, you can do it faster. What's most important is that you just do it. All right, so really, really exciting story. Lots of really practical advice, uh, mindset things, and tactics as well. Before we get going, I do want to let you know I've started doing live training webinars. We're going to do a variety of topics about raising money, analyzing deals, uh, mindset things, how do we appear more experienced than we are. So to check that out, again, this is changing every single month, depending on when you listen to this. It's uh, themichaelblanc.com forward slash live. So T-H-E. Michael Blanc, B-L-A-N-K.com forward slash live and check out the latest live training webinar. All right, so let's get into the interview with Michael Zuber. Here we go. Hey, Michael, welcome very much to the show. Thanks, Michael. Glad to be here. So really anxious to get into your story because obviously you're full-time now. You're no longer have a W-2 job and it was all through real estate. And uh, people love to hear about that stuff, Michael. So let's let's just start from the. I gave away the conclusion already. Sorry, you know, spoiler <laughs> alert. But more people are interested in how you actually got here. So talk to us about how you got started in real estate in the first place. What was going on in your life? Why did you start thinking real estate? And kind of what was your, you know, what was those early days like? Sure. You know, our story begins in real estate about fifteen. It's actually probably sixteen years ago. We were. Uh, I guess burned out stock market investors, right? We thought we were the next Warren Buffett or, you know, great day trader and, you know, made looking back decent money doing that. And then in a span of 48 hours, we lost six figures and realized that the stock market is just the largest casino on the planet. And uh, we didn't, we did not figure anything out and we didn't want to suffer that again. So we, I remember driving to a bookstore, right? Those don't really exist anymore, but just going aisle by aisle looking for something that I could gravitate to and, you know, wanting to be secure because I grew up rather in rather poor and money was always a you know one of my bugaboos and 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 quickly came to real estate because it was it was real it was a market that was you know if you focused on it was kind of inefficient right there were individual transactions and not like stock market always priced and you know that I believed right away that that real estate could be the thing so we you know spent a year of researching and then finally bought our first house that's awesome when you say we who are you referring to my wife. Oh, that's great. So you're in this together in this thing, which is fantastic. You're like, man, this can't go on this way. Did you have any specific goals at this point when you're thinking real estate? It sounds like to me, you just wanted a better place to park your money at the time. Is that right? Yeah. I had no you know, desired plan or path other than I wanted to take little pieces of capital 
put him in something that would be worth and secure a, a lot more sometime in the future, right? I had no grand plan of being financially free in 15 years. I simply knew that I wanted security that I didn't have from a W-2 job. And, you know, I'd been through business cycles and seen unemployment when I was growing up in my family. And I just had to have, you know, my money spread around. Yeah, that's right. So what was your strategy then? It was a buy and hold? Were you flipping? What, what were you, what was in your head earlier on? Yeah, very good question. So I've, I was a buy and hold guy for 15 years. Actually, you know, I, I, you know, I pushed the idea of one rental at a time, as you know, and, and that's what we did. I had a full-time job. You know, I was very busy. I traveled 100 days a year for my job, did 200,000 air miles at least. Wow. So buy and hold was the only thing that worked. Flipping, um, now that I'm done and retired, is, is something I can do, but it, it's another full-time job and I just didn't have the cycle. So definitely buy and hold. Definitely buy and hold. And how are you financing these things? You were just saving money and then trying to roll it in? Or how are you financing these rentals? That's a great question. So we started with uh, 40 grand. Uh, you know, it's probably more than some, but, but less than most. And we did our first deal. It was a $107,000 house and we put 20% down. So roughly 21 grand, which is roughly half of what we had, right? From, you know, 21 versus 40. That was the first deal. Then we did, you know, a, another one this time, you know, back then it was Countrywide or IndyMac. We did, you know, instead of putting 20% down, we put 10, right? We did an 80% first, a 10% second, and then 10%. And we did one more of those to sort of consume that 40 grand. Mm. Uh, but then we spent probably the next year or so simply refinancing them, right? Because if you remember 2003, the market was like today, where it was a seller's market. And we were able to refinance and, you know, take capital out and, and buy, you know, others. So we went from, you know, one house to, to eight properties. So seven houses in a duplex, essentially on that first 40 grand. And I believe one of them we borrowed from our 401k. So not new capital. That's fantastic. So you were doing this for now seven years or so. And at one point, this was going well at one point, obviously, and, and until maybe 2008 or so. Uh, what happened around that time? Yeah, so we got lucky. It's you know, it's, you know, you can call it skill or luck. I just call it luck. So we, right in two thousand and eight, as you've correctly highlighted, was an interesting time. But what happened to us is, you know, I have an accounting brain, right? I was I have a finance brain. I, I have an MBA and an accountant by training, and I could not make houses work, right? They just fundamentally didn't work. So just for example, that first house we bought for one hundred and seven grand, and it rented for eleven hundred. In two thousand and eight, it was worth two hundred and sixty five thousand dollars. Still rented for eleven hundred. Hmm. Right? My brain could not wrap myself around buying another one of those. So what we did actually is we ten thirty one all of those first eight properties into small apartment buildings because what we saw in our market at that time was a gross exaggeration of value in one to fours and an underappreciation of value in the fives to twenties. So we took all of that extra equity that turned out to be fake moved it into apartment buildings, no new capital, and our cash flow went up tremendously. We went from eight units to 80 units in about a year and a half. That's an interesting observation because you could see the bubble literally like spanning on the residential side and not on the commercial side. Why? Because everything on the commercial side is based on actual income, which yeah. really wasn't increasing that much, right? You're like, what is going on? So you're watching this firsthand. You're like, so you, you were able to get out of most or all the houses before the actual crash? All of them. All of them, yeah. We got out of that all is. Them. Outstanding. I think that makes you literally the genius, Mike. <laughs> no, no. Lucky. I just, I just wouldn't buy the next one because I, you know, I just had to keep going. We couldn't, you know, having eight properties is probably enough to make your, when you retire in your 60s, probably more interesting. I'm, I'm not confused. 
But if you can go from eight to 80 and dramatically increase your cash flow, now you're on to something, right? Now you're talking, you know, at that time, we were already starting to talk about early retirement and, and things of that nature. It's because of the apartment buildings, right? That 265 house on Norris Drive rented for 1100. We 1031 into a five unit building that produced almost 3000 in income at the same price, right? Mm, it's interesting. All that equity went in there and it was, it's been cash flowing forever. So that answers the question why you moved into multifamily. You were literally running out of stuff to buy that makes sense. You're like, well, let me just cash this out, move it into here. My cash flow all of a sudden dramatically goes up. So let's talk about that that first deal. Talk about, you know, where was it? How big was it? You know, how did you get this? How did you find it? So people always want to learn more about that first deal. Yeah. So the first one, um, we'll just talk about it, right? Was Norris Drive was the house and we 1031 into a five unit building on Vassar. You know, again, I wish there was some super secret math, but we, we you know, didn't do anything other than pay attention to the MLS, which was a local multi-listing service. Also spent some time on LoopNet, which was just coming around in, in 2008. But we found this one through an agent relationship that we had. The owner, you know, j- just was ready to get out. They were ready to make a deal. And, you know, we went through a 1030 Watt Exchange firm and it was, it was a pretty smooth process. That's awesome. And what did you do from there? And did your strategy shift at that point? Were you kind of done with single family? And what did what was your strategy like at that point? And were your goals any different than they might have been in the beginning? Yeah. So we were always going after cash flow. So that goal that goal maintained. One of the things that that was kind of a a moment for us because everything we had read and done it up until that point was always, frankly, what we grew up with. Right. We always knew houses. Right. We always lived in homes. Right. So that's all we ever bought. I had never even thought about buying a multi-unit. I just assumed they were above my skill set or capabilities or you had to be a big guy, right? It was just, I never even, never even investigated it and realized that, no, it's really not that much different. There's certainly finance different. Paperwork's much thicker, but we've been looking at apartment buildings ever since and went on to buy some more as well, so. Isn't that interesting? You you actually in your mind you dismissed apartment buildings. Like you might you drove by them. Someone mentioned an apartment building. You're like you didn't even, never even considered it. Never did. Why is that? Because you're not the only one. I certainly was the same way, and so many are. And that's why in the title of my book, I don't even put apartment buildings in the title because of the same thing. In your mind, why was apartment buildings never in your strategy? Yeah, I mean, I've I've given this a lot of reflection, and the only thing I could think of is I was never. I say taught, but. Really, when you're never taught any of this, right? In high school, college, even if you have an MBA, it's really the experience of growing up. And at least in my family, money was never really a topic other than stress. And it was, you know, if you could get to owning a home, right, you have made it in in my family and my extended family. So at least in my circle of influence, it was never even a thought. I mean, I literally thought all apartment buildings were owned by, you know, hedge funds or just these uber, uber millionaires and never even never even thought to ask. It was kind of sad. Hmm. It is kind of sad. Yeah. And people have told me, you know, it's, uh, it's not never even entered their, their reality. Uh, they always, if they do think about it, think of it as a very advanced strategy, someone, uh, millions. And, and it's, as you now know, looking back, it's just not the case. No, not at at all. all. And I would tell you again, if you're like me and your, your goal is financial independence, right? You're, you want to get to that point. Apartment buildings, when bought, correctly, meaning there's value add and there's things you can do to manage the building, produce a lot more of my financial independence than a single home, right? Even if you buy a single home right, right? There's this, all these other owner occupants making prices, you know, pretty close to what they are. But if you can go to an apartment building, what we found, especially in the fives to twenties, is the competition is almost non-existent. First, they're too small for the big boys. That's why they don't look there, right? It's not worth their time. And then there's this whole pool of people 
that are just looking at homes through fourplexes because that's residential financing. There's just huge gap in the market where there's like lots of assets, but like five people looking at them. So it's, it's a lot of fun. That's an interesting point. There's a gap between five and, you know, 20, maybe even even 50 units. Like, you know, we're looking, we really want to be more in the 100 plus range, but let's say we're down more in the 75. Mm-hmm. And so anything smaller than that, it, you know, we're not looking either. So that, that you're right. So it's a perfect opportunity to kind of get started in that, in that realm. But you just mentioned something about financial freedom. Mm-hmm. Did you guys, you and your wife, uh, before mm-hmm. it was just a, a place to put your money that's not as volatile, has more, uh, you know, steady growth in there. At what point did you guys think that you could actually like quit your jobs one day if you keep doing this? When right, when, right when we did those, well, actually probably the first or second 1031 exchange, when we took this little house that was producing like $100 a month on a good month and we turned it into an asset that was almost $1,000 a month every month. We're like, oh my God, right? We do this seven more times. We're like eight grand a month and pretty soon you have a spending problem, not an income problem. Right. So that, that was it. So 2008, 2009, it became something we were shooting for. She actually retired in 2013. Yeah. That was when it really clicked that this was possible. But isn't that interesting though, right? I mean, that, sh- that mindset shift. And oh. there's some people who dabble in real estate and have a rental and it's just like income or because they you know, hear people that's a good idea. But when someone does a, a multifamily, even a duplex with a multifamily mm-hmm. mindset, they're doing it for some kind of financial freedom, quitting the job or something. It's a total mind shift. Oh, t- totally agree. I, and it's because of apartment buildings. If it isn't clear, it's, it should be clear now that we're financially free because of our apartment buildings and that mindset of you know, creating value, you know, managing the building. It's all the same stuff as a house. It's actually usually smaller, right? Because the units are physically smaller, but you can get a lot more cash flow or bang for your buck uh, in apartment buildings for sure. So from that, uh, I think it was a five unit you did. Uh, mm-hmm. What did you do after that over what, what course of time? Yeah, so we did the, you know, the next seven. So we 1031 all the houses, right? One house became five, one became 10. We did a 10, a 13, an 18, a seven. You know, it just went on and on for the next 18 months. And the beauty is we kept saving the out of, frankly, overvalued houses, just moved into apartment buildings. And we just kept saving and saving. And well, lo and behold, the crash came. And uh, we had a bunch of cash and we started buying anything that made sense, whether they were single family homes for land value. And we bought many apartment buildings. We, we added 50 apartment buildings or units during the crash because they went through the same gyrations. And yeah, we were ready for you know, 2010 and 11. How did you recognize, you said you were buying everything that kind of makes sense. How, how did you recognize a good you know, apartment building deal when you, when you saw one versus maybe two years prior? Oh, it was about, it wasn't, so we're talking about during the crash, correct, Michael? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for me, it was how we could structure the deal, right? All the apartment buildings we bought during the crash were no, uh, no down payment deals. I we see. bought, yeah, we bought one from an owner who caught, caught kind of mid remodel. They vacated all 10 units, did five repairs, moved people in. It didn't work out. They got burnt. So we took over the note. The building next door ended up being foreclosed on. The bank came and saw what we were doing. They gave us that one for the note value. And then the other one was an 18-unit building that was sold right at the peak for 1.4 that we ended up buying for 700, uh, 100% owner financing. You know, So it was about leveraging our capital correctly and using our now, because at that point we were well over 100 units and we were using our financial strength and stability and experience in the market to solve big problems, whether it was a bank who had a 10-unit building, which they didn't want, or an owner who had an 18-unit building that they didn't want because it was too much for them to manage. So um, we were about 
we were about solving big problems for people and not deploying a lot of capital. That's fantastic. So it was a great time. So it wasn't so much that you were getting in discounts, but you were getting terms. And that's very, very powerful. Oh, absolutely. We, it was all about, now don't get me wrong, we didn't overpay either, but I was willing to, you know, oh, okay, well, I'll pay 220 for that if I, you know, almost no financing other than an appraisal or whatever it was. But yeah, I was, it was all about, you know, buying an asset cheaply, but the terms are far more important because we wanted to keep raising our cash and grow our uh, unit base. It was, it was a special time. Now, you know, you said your wife quit uh, in 2013. I think you just recently quit your job as, as well. But tell me about that transition. You also said that you could have probably quit three or four years ago. And sometimes we tend to hold on a little bit longer. We want to make sure it's there or we have that emotional or connection with that W-2 job. But talk about your transition. Should you have, could you have done it earlier? Yeah. What was going on in your mind? Yeah. So 2013, we had successfully taken my wife's W-2 money and, and put it in another account. So we never, we could, we could touch it if we had to, but we just wanted to, you know, make sure we could live without that. And it went off without a hitch. She, she made, you know, okay money, but not nearly what I made. So that was a pretty easy transition and she was ready to go out. Right. So she's, she's been volunteering. She's been taking art classes. So she has been filling her day and having a, a great time since 2013. For me, frankly, now looking back on it, I, my ego was kind of wrapped up in my job, right? I was very good at what I did. I got huge attaboys and kudos and pats on the back and, you know, traveled the nicest. You know, it's just, I was, um, I was too wrapped up in my own head and own ego, you know, to, to let it go. Right. I told myself I loved my job. I told myself I would do it for free, but it was all those other things that sort of, I held on to, even though I could find it, I didn't need the money financially, but I needed it for my own ego was why I held on as long as I did. Well, how did you cope with that? Because we, and I would say men and specifically, we just wrap our identity up in what we do. Oh, yeah. And when we take away what we do, all of a sudden we lose our identity and we're confused. We get depressed, right? And how did you, how did you cope with that? So uh, first I had to go through what you just described. I remember the first couple of days when you say you're, you're done, you're retired, whatever you want. It's like, a, it's like a caffeine high, right? It's you know, all these great things and everybody you talk to, you're screaming on the phone. But then I remember sort of day three through kind of like day 30, frankly, as you said, being depressed, right? My body clock still gets up at, you know, 6 a.m. before I was up at 5.15 today, but I didn't have that thing driving me. So what happened is I had to work through that. But more importantly, I had to find something that I was committed to, right? I had to find something that would, I could, I could see progress. I could do things. So to that end, I had to find that next thing. So for me, it is helping and talking about real estate investing for the busy professional, right? That's what I was. I want them to see that this, this is possible. So everything I can do, I, I do for free. I give away. You know, as you know, I have that one rental at a time YouTube channel. You know, I put videos up there every day. I tell our story every day because I think more busy professionals need to hear it. So I'm just going to keep giving things away and keep throwing myself at that. And oh, by the way, I've picked up flipping. I've done 10 flips this year and you know, it's not as hard as I thought it would be, but it is certainly a full-time job. So I'm just being busy. Yeah, being busy. And why do you have a YouTube channel? Why are you doing all that stuff? Well, I had, I had again, I had to find a way to, to do good things, but also track. So the one thing that's, you know, interesting is I want to help a thousand people, right? And you sort of say that and you go, well, how are you going to track that, right? I was a, I was a sales guy for 20 years and you got to have your numbers. How many calls, how many appointments, how many appointments, how many deals, all of that. So the one thing that YouTube allows me to do is track subscribers. So I've tried to get to a thousand subscribers. I'm grossly behind that. I think I'm at 336 as of this morning by the end of the year. So I'm, I got six weeks left or whatever it is. And that's why YouTube, because it allowed me to do work and see outcomes. 
And then I can track usage and interest and calm, you know, all that stuff that I'm sure you see as well. It's just a way, it's a feedback loop. And that's the best one I've seen, right? A, a website doesn't really do that. A book doesn't really do that for me. I like the interaction. So you're a goal-oriented guy, I can tell, but why do you want to help a thousand people? <laughs> just because a hundred wasn't big enough, frankly. Well, why um, help anyone? Because I have to do something. I have to give back. It's just who I am, right? I've been leading teams for so long. And when you can have a conversation and you can help somebody just have a little bit better future, I think that's what life's about at this point, right? It's, I have, it's a long time since I've been motivated by money, but now I'm motivated by helping people, right? If I just talk to one new person a day, that's often the highlight of my day, right? You know, I'm going to, hey, that person's going to get, they're going to go get their first rental property. And, you know, I, I feel good about that. Interesting. So if something shifted in your mind, I don't know, it was like, it was like a, for me where, you know, at one point I was just chasing money and made a bunch of money and then subsequently lost a bunch of money and then something shifted and yeah. it stopped being about money. At what point did, in your mind, did it stop being about money? So there's really two different shifts. One is while I was working and I went from being an individual contributor and very successful, which was all about money. I mean, I, you know, I, again, I already mentioned earlier, I didn't have a lot growing up. I remember being, putting groceries in my family's fridge at 12 years old, having an under the table job. So, I, you know, I was, I knew money was important, right? It fed us. And so I've been hustling and grinding and chasing the dollar until I was probably 35 or 36, just because money equaled security for me. At which point I, I had gotten to a point where the bills were paid and I was saving enough and we had this real estate portfolio building. So it was less of a me thing. And then it became about helping others uh, do something. In my chosen profession of selling software, I helped you know, many, many individuals have record years. And that, was, that became the feeling I chased that last decade was helping other people have their best year ever. It gets addicting, frankly. Good. You're just continuing, but in a different way. I, I love that. Now, looking back at, your, at your, uh, you know, what you've done here, got into single family houses, leveraged your market, got out of those, got into multifamily, and that then allowed you to essentially quit your job at one point. Um, what could you, now, if I, if I do count the years it took you a little while, um, sure. if someone, yeah. well, is, is, do you think there's a way that you could have maybe accelerated that if you had done some, something differently? And if so, what would you have done and what difference would that have made? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things I could have done differently. And, and first off, I shouldn't have been so blind to what I'll call multifamilies. We can call apartments, commercial, whatever you want to call that, right? There's power and value in the market that's being underserved or under-reviewed. We've already talked about, I call it five to 20, maybe it is five to 50. But there's just this huge market of stuff that was built decades ago that's not really being looked at by buyers. I should have been looking there earlier. That would have probably saved four or five years off our journey, you know, mm. to financial freedom easily. Four to five years. That's uh, and your journey. Do you say what is, is how long? Fifteen years. Fifteen years. But you could have quit your job a little while before then. To be fair, right? True. Yeah, probably 13 years would have been the mark that I could have. So 13 have minus five would have been now an eight, right? Correct. Okay. Yeah, that's just by, okay, but just paying attention a little bit more around that. So interesting. Keep going. Yeah, because, you know, again, to close that out, right? What I've seen and now have years of experience with, if cash flow is what you need to pay your bills, which most people do, that five to 20 or five to 50 market is a sweet spot for, for yield in turn and you get, you know, rent appreciation and all of that. So mm -hmm. would have been, would have been great. The other one I should have spent more time figuring out was raising and leveraging either uh, private and or hard money, right? Because, you know, when I started, those first deals were all bank financing. Right? I thought banks was the only thing that lent on properties. 
And it wasn't until the crash and no bank would talk to us, right? Because if you remember that time frame, which I'm sure you do, there was a three or four year window where if you owned 80 units, no bank wanted to talk to you, right? You were the devil, right? You were evil, right? These whole four loan limits and all that stuff going on. So we had to figure something out, right? We could pay cash for a couple of things, but that's not interesting. So we figured out, you know, first we went to hard money, right? Which is just simply more expensive and points and all of that. And then we finally went to private money, which is, you know, we've used a lot even to this year, we're still using some private money. So, and I, the only time I go to banks now is when I want to refi one of my apartment buildings, right? I haven't been to a bank for a residential loan in eight years, probably. So what about raising money? Have you thought about that? Have you, have you, have you had to do that yet? Or how are you financing your other projects? Yeah. So I do raise private money. I've raised probably 1.6 just this Amazing. year. Yeah. I happen to raise private money on a program I call six and 20. So I pay 6% interest and then they're my 20% equity partner when we sell. Cause I mentioned I'm doing flips. So that's all my flips are, are funded via private money with, you know, average four to six month hold times. Um, but yeah, so there's, that's definitely something we've done. You know, raising private money is a great way. And a lot of people have cash that, but don't have time, right? right? So they're looking for experienced people and they like programs that, you know, are, are legit and they go through escrow and there's a deed recorded in a note and it's a financial instrument. And right. So all these things happen doing good work. Yeah. We have more access to more private capital than we have deals. So, you know, that's, that's a good thing. What would, difference would it have made had you started raising money? So you could say, talk about getting started earlier with apartment buildings, but combining the terms you were getting with maybe raising money, mm -hmm. what difference would that have made to you? Oh, that could have. If we would have tackled private money, you know, right from the beginning, you know, frankly, we could have five or 600 units now, right? We were, we were taking down and I feel really good because this is something I wanted to say is we were determined during the crash to buy everything that we could, right? Because every book I read talked about, oh, I wish I bought more during the crisis. I wish I did this. I wish I did that. So we never said that, but we never said that using our pool of capital and our financial resources. If I had just looked up and gone, why don't we go private money? There's all these people out there making less than 1% in the bank that we know just in our network, right? We could have raised, you know, probably seven, several million dollars and we would have had three or 400 units now. And that would be, you know, it's nice now, but I couldn't imagine what that would do. That's awesome. Now, looking ahead, we're kind of look, uh, looking at the head of the market. We're kind of expecting a somewhat of a correction, uh, which mm -hmm. we would welcome. And you've been uh, through a cycle as well. What are you doing to prepare yourself for that? How are you going to take advantage of that? Yeah, so I think the market, certainly in the high price markets where I live, I'm in, I'm in the Bay Area, Southern California, New York, all these other markets. I think, I think anything above the median is in trouble. I think the seller's market is over. I've actually published that a couple of different times to some people were fighting me, but now I think they're kind of getting it looking at the numbers from October. But, you know, again, I try to play in the market that's not really impacted by that, right? I'm not, I don't buy owner occupant stuff, right? I'm not competing for the three, two, two car garage with granite this and granite that, right? I buy affordable housing, at least in my market, they're not making more affordable housing. And frankly, the for affordable housing stock there is, is constantly being picked over and raised and brought up to new standards. So, you know, we are certainly raising some cash. We're calling the herd, if you will. We're taking some of our weaker stuff and, and you know, selling that to someone else because I will take advantage of this next cycle uh, again, for sure. That's awesome. That's fantastic. So what's your advice to someone getting started, right? So you're doing your job or whatever the case may be. You're like, man, this kind of sucks. I need something. I want to do real estate. And, yeah. you know, maybe they are thinking multifamily, maybe they're not. But what's your advice to help someone kind of get over that hurdle and get started? Yeah. So one of the things that, you know, when I talk to investors and we tell our stories, right, yours and our stories, they kind of get enamored with that financial independence. But 
oftentimes, if you really get inside their head, they look at that going, that's not me. That's too big. They got lucky, you know, whatever it is. So what I now tell people is, you know what, you should just think about getting four. You should get four rentals, right? And why four? Well, because four is extremely easy to get financed, right? You can go to any bank and get four financed. I believe if they get to four, they're going to be financially better off regardless. But I also believe that if you get to four, there's nothing stopping you can get to the 10 or 20 or, or whatever. I try to reset at people's expectations. You know what? You should just start to get to four. You should get to four inside of two years, one every six months. You know, if we can get them focused on that and it doesn't feel so far away, it doesn't feel so big and scary. I think that's a much better conversation to have with people, in my opinion. When you're saying four rentals, you're talking about a quad or four single family houses? Anything at this point. Anything. I mean, anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it could be four houses, it could be four quads, it could be four 20 units. I, I don't care. I want them to think about a smaller number, right? Whatever they're comfortable with, let's get something, right? Yeah. Let's not take the, you know, let's not look at the 15 year journey of financial independence or eight year journey. Let's just get, you know, go get your first four. Okay, great. Great. So let's say we're focusing on a quad, right? It's a residential. I can get a normal residential loan for that. I may need a little bit of money. Would, would you raise money or what, how, what would you recommend people do to get into that four unit? I would say, again, this, everybody's example is different. I believe most people have the wherewithal if they start saving or they borrow their 401k or whatever to get the first one on their own. I personally would have a hard time going out and raising private capital without any experience. Right? I want to be able to say I've done it, I've looked at it. You know, so I would probably do that first deal myself just to say that I have. But then from then on, I would, I would use that track record to feed all future deals. Now, if you don't have that, that's not a possibility for you. I would probably partner on the first deal where maybe it's not truly uh, you know, you know, borrowing private money, but maybe you're an equity share or something of that nature. I think you've really got to do, I think private money is sexy. I also think there you should treat it with the respect that it deserves. And thus, you don't ever want to lose or put any of that at risk. So that's what I would probably do. Either either go get my first one or I would look to partner with someone to get to start building that track record and then, and then go from private money after that. Yeah, exactly right. I totally agree. First deal is where, where, it's, where it's at. Just focus on that. Nothing else. The rest will take care of it later. Hey, thanks yep. so much. What's a, Michael, what's a, a best way for people to find you? The best way to find me is just to please subscribe to that YouTube channel. It's called One Rental at a Time. That's what I do every day. I put at least a little four or five minute video there. And again, you know, give it a listen and let me know what you think. All right. So how do people find it on, on YouTube? Just t- type in one rental at a time. Let's get very specific here. How, what's yep. the easiest way for people to find that? Yeah. You should just go to YouTube and type in one rental at a time. Just one space rental space at a time. There's thousands of people listening to this podcast. So let's, let's all do that right now. Stop what you're doing. Pull over the side of the road. Okay. Just pull out your phone. <laughs> go to YouTube. Type in one rental at a time. And then click that red subscribe button. Okay, right now I'm looking at there's 340 subscribers right now. So everybody click the red button right now. Let's get Michael to 1,000. All right? Thank you. So appreciate that, guys. Awesome. Michael, thanks so much for being on the show. Really enjoyed learning more about your story. And I am sure that your story will inspire literally thousands. Awesome. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for the opportunity. Oh man, so good. And what I love about it is Michael Zuber came to the same conclusion that I have come to my book, which is called Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing, available on Amazon, because it took him 15 years to go with a single family house plus not raising money route. And he probably could have done it in three years or faster had he raised money and gotten started multifamily first. Isn't that amazing? What a shocker. But again, what's most important is his ultimate conclusion, which is this. 
get yourself into something. Get yourself into a small deal, a duplex, a four unit, whatever you can wrap your head around, just do it because that triggers the law of the first deal. And that law of the first deal then gets you your second one in almost automatic rapid succession and it's going to be bigger and the third one will come essentially automatically. You'd have to expend more energy not to do the second and third deal than to simply just go with the flow. So that first deal is super, super powerful. Uh, you know, I was asked recently, you know, I haven't done my first deal yet. What, what am I doing wrong? And you really need three things. You need deal flow, right? You need access to funds and you need a solid team in place. And I find that when people don't have a first deal, that one or more of those is not working properly. So if you're frustrated by not having a first deal, you know, you might want to consider getting help and uh, check out our, our coaching program. We have a, a fantastic coaching program now and it was essentially 100% success rate. And what I mean by that is people doing the work, applying the system are becoming successful and people who don't simply don't. It's We've got it down to a, almost a science now, kind of like the blueprint. So if you think coaching might help, you go to themichaelblank.com forward slash coaching. There's a button there. You can schedule a free strategy session with us and explore if that's something for you. Uh, so check it out, themichaelblank.com forward slash coaching. And again, we have a bunch of uh, monthly live training sessions. That's at themichaelblank.com forward slash live. So check that out as well. All right, guys, that's it for today. Really appreciate you. Thanks so much. Catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.